0: And it was really powerful work. Something really clicked for me around that, uh, where I thought, oh, this is, this is where the juice is for me, where these emotions come alive and how that intersects with my ability to keep engaging with this issue. How are other people experiencing this? How are everyday people coming to terms with this issue? And so I got interested in researching that.
1: Mm-hmm. What
0: is How is climate change appearing in daily life for people, if at all? And what does that mean for our ability to confront it? And resolve it. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. The show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every
1: continent. The rate is a great concern. Uh, what do you know so, that rate? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some. Still doubt that we have the will to act, but I say, the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello, welcome to Climactic, episode 32. This week we're bringing you an interview with Beth Hill, an anthropologist and member of Psychology for a Safe Climate. Now I'll tell you a little bit more about who that group is and what they do. Psychology for Safe Climate is a nonprofit based here in Melbourne. It's an organization of psychologists and other helping professionals who are passionate about fostering engagement with climate change. Their purpose is to contribute psychological understanding and support within the community, helping people face the difficult climate reality. And that really sums it up quite well. I got introduced to Beth through a past guest of the show, Kate Wachow. Kate was nice enough to introduce me to Beth because she wanted to hear what Beth had to say and thought it would make for a pretty good interview. And boy, was she right. Beth is an extremely knowledgeable, articulate, and passionate member of this community, and I couldn't have asked for a better introduction to Psychology for a Safe Climate and the entire arena of thinking about climate change from a psychological or anthropological perspective. It was a really great chat with Beth, and I've been thinking about it ever since. And stick around to the end of the show for a bit more about Psychology for a Safe Climate. We're in a lovely place to do this recording. You're, you're kind enough, Beth, to have me into your home. This is wonderful up here in Brunswick. I, I don't get up this way near enough. and I just feel so good out in the suburbs with some air and light and, <laughs> and a lovely day as well in Melbourne, which is great. So Beth, if I can just set the scene quickly, I heard about Psychologists for a Safe Climate uh, probably a few months ago. There was this adaptation sector summit in Melbourne was like the Victorian state government in the city of Melbourne got... Uh, I was quite interested because there's this podcaster from the States who's coming after this keynote and really pitch why more government groups should get into podcasting and stuff, which was mm. kind of cool. The government brought him out to do that. I'm not sure if anything's happened in that space <laughs> yet, but psychologists for a safe climate were there and they were speaking on the panels. Were you there on that day at all?
0: No, no, I wasn't there. It's actually psychology for a Sorry. safe climate as well. I've Just... been
1: calling it psychologists, have <laughs> Yes. Yeah, we're not limited by profession. It's yeah, that, that skill set. Of, right, yeah. That, that discipline.
0: Yeah, and I mean, most most of our uh, people who facilitate are psychologists. Uh, I'm actually not a psychologist, though, so yes. it's important to me to make that distinction as well.
1: <laughs> psychologist, psychologist. So, Beth, you as a psychologist, I'm not. Okay, take it all again. Yeah, thank you for that. The bat. We'll, we'll get into what you do and then how you mm-hmm. got into it here. So as soon as I heard about the group, I was really interested because I was right in that stage of just starting to get serious about this stuff, which is probably maybe one of the most dangerous phases of this where you're faced with overwhelming amount of data mm-hmm. and and facts and kind of like that person who watches an inconvenient truth for the first time. And it's just like a whole avalanche of new stuff comes at them. Mm. So I was really interested in, yeah, in the group. And I really wanted to talk to somebody about the group and what, what they did, but then I it was one of these things where there's there's so many groups to talk to and everything, I kind of let it slide for a while. Mm. And then Kate Watchow from Friends of the Earth Act on Climate is a group I'm I'm doing this podcast miniseries with, and she sent me her email address and said, "You need to talk to Beth." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, it, this is this is great. Why are you sending me this?" And Kate's like. Oh, I, I really want to hear an interview with her. So I'm like, this is good. I like this mindset. I hope this catches on more. Like, it's a good start. Yeah. Just so mm-hmm. if you know anyone who you want to hear more about, just send it to Climactic. That's great. <laughs> I love that. So yeah, Beth, tell us a little bit about your, your background. So you're not a psychologist, but how did you get involved with psychology <laughs> for a safe climate?
0: Let's see. I was at the beginning of doing some research. I was thinking about doing a PhD, looking at climate change and looking at particularly what I would characterize as the cultural, social and psychological aspects of climate change in terms of how it's impacting people, in terms of how people are thinking about it. And I came across Psychology for a Safe Climate, I think, back in 2013. And just, yeah, they were putting together these great pamphlets about talking with other people about climate change. And they were really the first group that I'd found in Australia who were actually saying... The psychology of this issue is really important. We need to understand it. We need to provide support to people to better engage with the issue. And so I went along to the meeting they had back in 2013, and I went along to that, and a few of them were giving speeches, and it was just really aligned with my sense of what I was interested in and what I felt I wanted to work on around climate change. perfectly
1: aligned with your PhD work.
0: Yeah, and so for me, they were in Melbourne, and at the time I was in Sydney, and I had another... uh, friend up there, I guess, who had been involved, Sally Gillespie, also an excellent person to interview, just so by by. <laughs> um,
1: You've been called out, Sally.
0: Yeah. So she, she'd been involved with Psychology for a Safe Climate as well, but there was really not much happening in Sydney. And we tried to get something going in Sydney, um, which we were calling the Climate Wellbeing Network. And it was another sort of spin-off from Psychology for a Safe Climate. And we were in contact with them, but trying to do our own thing. And then I was overseas for a couple of years and basically I moved back to Melbourne, well to Melbourne this year and looked them up and sought them out. And I'd been to their conference in 2015 and that again had been really inspiring. They had Susan Murphy, who's a Zen Roshi, come to speak about her activism and her work on climate change and yeah, really delving into these deeper spiritual and emotional and existential questions that it brings up that... But often it left unaddressed, I think, in the way it's communicated in the mainstream. It tends to be about science and data and solar panels. and I mean, all of that's really important as well.
1: It kind of yeah. leaves the human element out of it and how we're meant to actually deal mm. with this time as human beings Yeah, and how we're meant to cope emotionally. Yeah, Can I just ask what a Zen Roshi
0: A <laughs> Zen Roshi is a Zen master. So it's mm. like a, a, a teacher in the Zen lineage, in a particular Zen lineage, who's been awarded master status and they teach other students and teach other teachers and Susan Murphy would also be a very interesting person too. Very
1: interesting. I feel like I I would have to get onto a different level for speaking to speak into her but that would be very enlightening.
0: Mm. There were lots of reasons that drew me to Melbourne but the fact that Psychology for a Safe Climate was also based here was very exciting to me and I reached out to them and started conversations with them and they sort of said oh we've never had a non-psychologist be really involved. There's plenty of non-psychologists more peripherally involved but because I have background facilitating and because my thesis actually was looking quite a lot at psychology, there was enough of a crossover that we all agreed it would be good for me to get involved. So, so Definitely. I have. So I'll speak to what I know, mm. but I suppose I want to preface what I say with the fact that I'm pretty new to the group. Mm. So, I know that Carol lives in the Darabin Council area and works with Climate Action Darabin. There's, yeah, quite a lot of crossover between that group and and Psychology for a Safe Climate. I'm not sure about which other groups in Melbourne they work with. I would, would have thought Friends of the Earth. There's definitely a few regular faces I've seen at different workshops we've run But again, we're engaging with them as individuals more than as organisational members, so I'm not necessarily remembering, oh, they're from such and such. They also have gone to a number of the different, I suppose, activist conference gatherings around climate. There was one earlier this year up north, the Jamboree in Queensland, I think it was, maybe. Anyway, I didn't go. That's why I can't remember the name of it. It's a good reason. So, yeah, they've been going to, you know, various climate summits and things like that and providing workshops for many, many years, you know, in the midst of the schedule of let's talk about the carbon tax and then you have your thing on grassroots movements and then you have your thing on, you know, fracking and then there's the little psychology for a safe climate session that's you know, working with burnout or Mm -hmm. uh, working with climate grief and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they've definitely been doing that many years, but there seems to definitely be in the last, even just since I've been involved, a real pickup of interest in this work and in getting support for this work, Mm. kind of across the board from different environment groups, but also from people working on climate change policy and scientists and just anyone whose work life or activist life brings them into contact with the reality of climate change in a really deep way or a really daily way. Mm. It's a hard road to navigate on your own without support. So.
1: Really, the group is a way that a bunch of full-time working professionals in the psychology space, whether they're anthropologists or psychologists Mm. or, I don't know, psychiatrists, (laughs) that they can express and do something positive about this other big thing that's on their mind, which is climate change, anxiety. Mm. And it's something they can do either instead of or in conjunction with activism work. It's kind of just a way of exercising that anxiety.
0: You know, climate change is an issue that infiltrates so many different aspects of life and it's a way that you look at what's my skill set and what can I bring to this movement. I suppose as an anthropologist what I can bring is those deeper understandings of the, the cultural and psychological dimensions that shape our response and I suppose a lot of what the psychologists involved in psychology for a safer climate were thinking is how can I bring my professional expertise to bear on this issue that I really care about because, yes, it's important to blockade things and campaign and lobby politicians and do all those kind of personal changes to your lifestyle as well. But I think at the end of the day, we each need to ask ourselves, what is mine to do? What can I really offer to this movement? And that will be really different depending on who you are and what you enjoy and what what you're passionate about. I mean, you're offering podcasting, right? Like you're looking at this and saying, okay, what can I bring? Mm -hmm. And it's not a linear process. You know, I think the more of us that are just looking around and saying, well, what can I offer? Richness and diversity of strategy and tactics and, and change that will emerge, I think, is much more inspiring than just like, oh, I've got to go and, you know, go to every protest or somehow that, that's, that activism has to look a very particular way. Yeah.
1: Uh, we, we've been very surprised in, in doing this show already with talking to people that you would never expect to be activists until I tell you you'd think they were just mm. normal Joe blow people and then like you talk to the people who seem very activisty and everything and the you know that's it's, it's 1/20th of their life whereas the normal you know seeming person and not to use <laughs> normal's a bad word there's no like great way to say it like they're not wearing berets and that's, like like 10% of their life and it's just it's dangerous to start making assumptions about what people who care about the climate should be doing about it.
0: Oh, yeah, or what a climate activist looks like, mm. you know. I think, yeah, there is a huge diversity. And I, th- I think it's also that the necessity of having people doing all the different roles, you know. Like I think a lot mm. of the people we think of as climate activists out there on the front lines are doing really important work, putting their bodies on the line, really pushing a really clear message that this is urgent and this is not negotiable. But then, yeah, you do have a lot of other people Behind the scenes, not necessarily, yeah, yeah and, it's
1: and really important roles as well, but mm-hmm. much quieter. You have to go right. looking for what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's inspiring when you do find people mm. like you know you. I would never have thought about psychologists working behind the scenes or anthropologists <laughs> working in this space yeah. as well. Yeah. Can I just ask, sort of going back to your like your uni days when mm. you were studying anthropology to begin mm-hmm. with, what was your engagement with? the issue of climate change?
0: Well, during my undergraduate degree, very little. Mm. So, But that was when I became a climate activist, so it was during my university years.
1: So what engaged you in that if, if it wasn't the studies that did it?
0: Well, I mean, I think for me, mine's a bit of a clichéd story actually. I just went to see An Inconvenient Truth with some friends and that was, I think, back in 2006. And I obviously had heard of climate change before, but I don't think I'd really clocked it, mm-hmm. the reality of it. And watching that film flawed as other people have said it is in many ways for me was a real wake-up call and it was just like oh this is the issue of our time this is what I want to work on through that I got involved in the university environment collective and then through that various kind of activist campaigns through the university outside of the university and things like that and then I finished my degree and I started working as a campaigner on ocean conservation, which was a bit of a different direction. but even for me, that felt tied to the climate. suppose I kept contemplating the issue and really saw working as a campaigner that, that wasn't I wasn't well suited to that work. <laughs> it's really valuable and I'm so glad there are people out there who do it well, but I for me, it wasn't where I really felt alive. Mm. And so I suppose I went back to the drawing board about how did I want to be showing up and contributing.
1: That's hugely important. I feel there's a lot of people, there's a lot of potential for wasted effort and and squandered capital in this space because everyone wants to be doing something because we all feel the urgency and we all have that release of doing something, but it might not be the right match for our skills. And it really worries me in the volunteer space where you're volunteering into place, And you're feeling good because you're volunteering, but you don't feel like it's the best use of your particular skills. Mm. It doesn't make you feel like it doesn't make you come alive, like you said. Mm -hmm. And it's okay. And I'm really happy that you you said that. Like, it's okay that people do realize that this isn't the right thing for me. Climate change intersects with everything. There's there's something Mm. that's right for everyone to do in this space. Yeah. So that's really good to hear that, you know, you realize that campaigning wasn't for you had some campaigners on the show who love it and Mm. it does make them come alive and it's great so it's nice to hear i've seen people come alive you know
0: like i i just remember being in these meetings with other campaigners and thinking they are really enjoying this (laughs) i am not and that for me was a sign that to go back to the drawing board a little bit so then after i finished my job campaigning i took a little time off and thought about yeah going back to to do a phd and if i was going to do that what would i You know, what aspect would I really want to tackle? Yeah. And at that point, I encountered a woman called Joanna Macy, who's in the States, and she runs... You familiar with her at all? No. Nope. Sorry, I took your nodding as you... you That's know, me being
1: was. very amiable, but I shouldn't <laughs> do that. Like, I There's so many people in this space, it blows my mind. So Joanna, Joanna Macy. Macy
0: is an incredible long-time activist, environmentalist, Buddhist scholar who has come up with this body of work called The Work That Reconnects.
1: Okay, now I, now I think I have heard of that one, but mm. I don't know anything about it. But Yeah. <laughs> that was a genuine uh, I, I didn't know
0: anything about it either until I sort of, happened to find myself at this workshop that she was running and a lot of the work focuses on grief and and coming into contact with your despair for the world, Um, your personal despair and your despair for the state of the world and um, a lot of kind of group processes around sharing in that and ceasing to pathologize it as an individual problem, beginning to see it as actually a very healthy response to the reality of what's happening in the world. And it was really powerful work. Something really clicked for me around that. Uh, where I thought, oh, this is this is where the juice is for me, where these emotions come alive and how that intersects with my ability to keep engaging with this issue. How are other people experiencing this? And how is how are everyday people coming to terms with this issue? And so I got interested in researching that. Mm-hmm. What is, how is climate change appearing in daily life for people, if at all? And what does that mean for our ability to confront it and resolve it? Yeah, so, and, you know, a PhD changes a lot over four years, but that was certainly some of the groundwork of, of my interest in that direction. And I suppose in some ways that it, there is a through thread from that to working with Psychology for a Safe Climate, given that much of what they do is supporting activists around, you know, the very complex suite of emotions present mm-hmm. when you're working on an issue like this.
1: If you take another anthropologist who's just beginning the start of a four year PhD process right now Mm. and assuming they want to work in the field in in a contemporary sense and not do historical Mm. anthropology work, is it a fair assumption or a safe assumption that like climate change is going to have a huge impact on the work they do? Yes. (laughs) And so, (laughs) good. And so, the path you went down of studying the effect of, of grief on mm-hmm. people, especially like grief at the state of our natural world and could that be taught, do you think, in in a normal curriculum now? Like do you think that there is any movement to create like anthropology graduates not having to require this separate passion for climate change that you had? I'm sure there's a better question in there, but like is the the education you had that you kind of synthesize yourself mm. Do you think with the trajectory we're on, that that'll be like a normal anthropological education in five, ten years?:
0: Yeah, look. I mean I think in terms of anthropology and and the focus of anthropology, which is usually or historically has been on groups and cultures that are sort of outside the the West, and particularly looking at groups of people you know, all over the world who are living in long traditions of Indigenous culture, often in more marginalised places and ways because of the way that capitalism is unfolding and colonialism and all of that, it's inevitable that pretty much any group that you you go to spend a year and a half studying, there, there will be some aspect of climate change interacting with, with their life. And, and that would be, you know, I'm a very non-traditional anthropologist. My, my subject people were, you know, white middle-class suburban people in Australia. So kind of different again, but but I would say yeah you could almost pick you could almost pick any any cultural society anywhere in the world as an anthropologist and, and look at it through a climate lens. So I teach at Melbourne University just as a tutor. I teach on a first-year anthropology subject and we do one week that's called I think Nature and Engaged Anthropology and a lot of it is about, you know, historically anthropologists have worked with local people in Papua New Guinea who are suffering the impacts of the Octeti mine and things like that. It's very much in the traditional forum of anthropology, looking at environmental impact and climate change is in a way an extension of environmental anthropology, but in in other ways it, it impacts every aspect of life. So I'd say it's it's definitely in the mix in terms of how anthropology students are taught. I don't know. There's not a lot of explicit focus on it. I guess it's more like one of the optional lenses you might want to pick up and focus on Mm -hmm. in your research rather than say the topic that needs to be addressed.
1: The way you framed it about anthropology being largely the study of, of groups outside of the West. It's really like anthropology is the way that we've been looking at the world outside of, of us, us being sadly white, white Mm -hmm. Western people both Mm -hmm. represented here at the table. It's just like, it's the way we've kind of studied not us. So it's not a look at people. It's the people that aren't us.
0: Mm. And, and that's changing a lot. Yeah. Like that's contemporary anthropology. There's there's much more ethnographic work that happens in the West as well. And obviously a lot of the critique of anthropology is the problematic othering um, and mm. exploitation that can occur when you, you go elsewhere to try and study, you know, the exotic other. Mm-hmm. Um Plenty of strangeness enough at home to kind of get into questions <laughs> which about. Which is why in you're my in the, your
1: entire PhD sort of based here at home, yeah. which is great. Yeah, but it's also like that's the lens through which we are seeing climate impacts right. sooner and faster. And, yeah, and, and worse. there is
0: a lot of anthropological work on that mm. um, because, yeah, people living in the Arctic, people living in the Pacific, there's fascinating work about how their culture is being impacted and their stories of the different seasons and how they relate to their culture and how that's being eroded because because those seasons don't exist anymore or
1: mm. those
0: particular glaciers don't exist anymore. Um, yeah, anthropologists are doing fascinating work about how how people are being impacted very, very directly.
1: That's, that's such a deep thread and seam of like actually – because I've never been able to to look at climate change, which is an everything problem, and I, I tend to have sort of one – perspective I look at things at in, in terms of climate change which is very kind of dystopian and mm. pessimistic and it's why I'm doing the show to try to get some hope because mm. I don't have a lot myself mm. but like just the lens through bringing back in the thread you talked about to work with grief mm. and then I think I just had the thought straight away of like oh wow it, it was you could take the grief of, of society felt during Great Depression era United States and say that grief led to the Hoover Dam the interstate highways and like just think like in grief in 10, 20 years time is going to lead to seawalls around Manhattan Island. And it's going to be like, it's actually cool being able to connect these physical, tangible changes in like the built world to the emotional feelings of people at the time. Mm. And that's just, it's a fascinating lens through which to see the world. And like, is there any kind of particular thing? Like if you just blank canvas, just climate change up the top, like, well, what do you see in the near future, of sort of changing our society because of the way we're we're feeling about it? Mm. That's a huge question. Just like,
0: yeah, <laughs> I mean, it depends whether you want to be optimistic or pessimistic.
1: <laughs> like, I want to be optimistic. I'm naturally pessimistic. I've read way too much sci-fi and and dystopian stuff. Mm-hmm. I just, I've colored my opinions too mm. much. Ruined my perspective.
0: <laughs> I think there's something fascinating going on in terms of how our culture currently relates to to emotions in general and what that means for how we hold something like climate change and particularly the trauma associated with with disasters that are connected with climate change or even the difficulty associated with a coal-fired power plant closing down, for example, and what a community has to go through to transition also brings up a lot of very complex emotions. My research was based in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales, And I was looking at a community who'd gone through a catastrophic bushfire back in 2013. And I suppose I went with an interest in climate change, but also with a very open mind about, you know, how is this community making sense of what what has happened here? And they may or may not actually see climate change as relevant at all. So that was quite an interesting thing to hold. And what I noticed in terms of the emotional landscape in that community and what I think speaks to probably the biggest challenge that we face, was in the midst of all of that trauma, it was very difficult to talk about climate change for a couple of reasons. One, it's considered so distant and abstract, you know, how could it possibly relate to this immediate... um, To
1: my house being burned down. Exactly,
0: to everything I've just lost. And then on the flip of that, I'm already in total despair about my very personal loss because of this environmental disaster I don't really want an additional layer of of disempowerment added to that by making it about climate change, which is extremely understandable. And then on top of that, I would say in Australia and my particular research interest is how we think about and relate to our own vulnerability and our own difficult emotions like grief and anger and even numbness, which can often be a form of grief as well. And what I encountered a lot in this community was both very inspiring in terms of the way that people pull together to really support each other in their vulnerability, but also the additional difficulty in a culture that tells you if if you're down and out, it's kind of your fault and your problem of, of owning that vulnerability and owning I'm not coping with this. Yeah, so we're in this interesting position um, in the West, and particularly in a country like Australia, where we're both facing a new kind of vulnerability to environmental disaster. But I would say more broadly, you know, there's lots of different vulnerabilities that are coming with climate change in relation to health and, and social infrastructure as well. So we're vulnerable but in a weird way we also feel culpable and it's very hard to, to hold both of those things at once. And I would argue in a way like the, the average individual Australian is not personally culpable for climate change but certainly our country is contributing a hell of a lot to carbon emissions globally globally. Not just in terms of what we personally emit, but in terms of the amount of coal that we export. Mm. And I do think that is settled somewhere in in most people's unconscious mind, whether or not they personally take responsibility for it. And um that emotional landscape I think leads to a lot of ambivalence and apathy and a lot of difficulty engaging with what it really means. So I guess as I see more more difficult things unfolding, be they ecological disasters or or other things. This real challenge for us as a society to come to terms with how we think about trauma and how we think about difficult emotions generally (laughs) as not just a personal pathology that you have to go and deal with on your own but as something that we have to really skill up around as a society um, to support people through these processes for those experiences to not be a barrier to engagement but actually a portal to engagement. But but from what I see at the moment, most of our Efforts towards adaptation are around infrastructure. They're not around social and cultural infrastructure. They're around technological infrastructure. You know, build this wall and get an, get, you know, get better energy sources from solar and wind and all of that. Again, it's really important. It's not an either or scenario, but I feel like what I would like to bring as an anthropologist is there is a really deep cultural and emotional component to this adaptation process that is not being talked about. Or directly addressed, at least not in what I've encountered so far.
1: How do we start to address it?
0: Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. How do we start to address it? Well, I think it's, it requires um, public talk about climate change mm-hmm. to, to be more acceptable in daily life. Certainly in the community I researched, climate change was quite a taboo topic. I actually encountered very few actual climate sceptics, but I encountered a lot of people who thought yes, I know it's happening, but I don't really know enough about it to talk about it. And I don't want to be the
1: downer who does talk about it. I don't want to be the chicken little.
0: (laughs) Well, it was also thought of as insensitive and political. It was sort of grouped Mm -hmm. in a similar region to like, you know, we don't talk about sex. We don't talk about religion. We don't talk about climate change, a socially dangerous topic. A lot of what I encountered in interviewing people and talking to them was it was the first time they'd had an opportunity to just talk to somebody else about some of the whirling contradictory thoughts and feelings they had about the issue without feeling like they had to take a political position on it. For me, I think the first step in terms of developing a more mature conversation around the emotional landscape is, is kind of dropping the political side of it for a bit and just letting people feel into the, the complex and often very contradictory thoughts and feelings they have and a lot can actually come out of that process and eventually engagement I think can come out of that process and maybe that's where it's then appropriate to reintroduce the political local councils being less afraid to talk about it at their level as well I think this sort of hamstrung position that a lot of local councils are in where obviously the policy change needs to happen at a federal level Mm-hmm. And at a global level, you know, there's not really much the if, average if they mayor can do. Put it do. out there,
1: they can they can be liable for not doing a huge mm-hmm. amount of action because it's out of their reach anyway to yeah. do.
0: And yet they're grappling with it every day mm-hmm. in the policies they're having to make and the plans they have to make for insurance in the future. And there's almost this interesting way that that they're shielding their local community from that reality that
1: conversation because, yeah
0: yeah so i think also just leading the way and saying look we don't have all the answers but we need to start talking about this yes i feel like there's a lot of reluctance to do that there's some of my initial thoughts i guess on on how that would happen
1: how did you go about actually being able to have conversations like that with people how did you find your the the subjects <laughs> of your study
0: uh, so I lived. Um, I moved up to Springwood in the mountains and I lived there for about 18 months. So
1: that's step number one. Yep. Pick a rural community. Or,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, you can pick a community anywhere, really. I mean, the Blue Mountains is just on the edge of Sydney mm. um, and a, a lot of people place, who live no. there actually yeah. commute into yeah. the city. It's probably more a suburban community than a mm-hmm. rural community. I did the traditional anthropological thing. You pick a field site, you live there, you learn the language. I mean, in my case, I already spoke English, so that was quite easy. There's usually... Um, yeah nuances to to the way that people speak and and inhabit that world that you need to sort of become familiar with and I volunteered at the community centers up there Mm -hmm. met a lot of people that way met a lot of people who were working on the recovery process after the fires Mm -hmm. yeah I had a friend who happened to be working up there there were a few just really interesting coincidences that that worked out quite well And just really slowly built trust and tried to come to terms with what had happened in so much as you can as an outsider. It is a very strange position to be in Mm -hmm. as a researcher, this sort of insider-outsider status. Yes,
1: you're trying to get to the very core of a community, but it's a community you've just come into.
0: Yeah. I was up there a good six months before I formally interviewed anyone. And for the most part, I wouldn't talk about climate change with people, partly because that was... What was socially expected, it would have been disruptive. (laughs) So I was just sort of following the social norms, but also because people tend to have a really preconceived idea about what you mean when you say, what do you think about climate change? They think you're asking about the science usually or the politics. And as an anthropologist, I was interested in the very daily lived experience of people in relationship to this bushfire disaster and in relationship to environmental change more generally like how did they connect with the bush and the trees? How were they rebuilding or not rebuilding? All of these questions that to my mind, if you could answer them, you would begin to build a picture about how they were thinking about climate change. Mm -hmm. But there's no way you would actually get that answer if you asked them directly about Mm -hmm. it. But in the interviews I would, and sometimes people were quite surprised. I had a few interview subjects be like, oh, I didn't realize there was going to be anything about climate change in this interview. And was always a bit of a funny feeling for me. Yeah, knowing how central it was in my heart and also having to hold the reality that for most people it's just not – it's very far down the list. Um, Yeah, or actively avoided. Yeah. Yeah. And having to honour that as well, like having to be like, yeah, fair enough. That's a completely acceptable (laughs) place for that to live, I think, given what you've just been through. Was that a
1: frustrating experience though, having to be like, you you guys have just lived through a terrible bushfire – this is simply a symptom of a, a, a system mm. and can we not talk about that system? This is like living in the Pacific and not talking about hurricanes. This is like...
0: Yeah, it's complex. So, yeah. yes, um, there definitely were parts of me that felt frustrated, like this. this should be the time that we're really getting into this topic and trying to confront it. But I also think that you have to respect the wisdom of the local people that you're engaging with and they know their community way better than you do and they know what they need better than you do as well. So I think there there has to be a balance between, you know, like not losing sight of what you believe and trying to bring that into the conversation, but respecting that you're just one voice amongst many. It would be, I think, highly problematic to go into communities and just tell them, this is what's happened to you and here are the solutions. You know, I don't think that's going to work. I think yeah. most people will we we'll balk at that as an option. So I'm sort of more interested in a more partnered dialogue with communities about what matters to you, what are you grieving, what are you celebrating, how do we then connect that with climate change for you? Maybe you make that connection, maybe you don't. How do we just start mm. building a conversation that's meaningful for you at the local level? And I think jumping straight to climate change doesn't necessarily do that. But excluding it altogether doesn't do it either. No, it
1: was very clever the way you did ask all the questions that kind of ring the periphery of the question Mm. and and get all those data points to basically be able to piece together what their thoughts on climate change are. If they were willing to rebuild in the exact same spot again with Mm. no differences, it's like, oh, you think this is never happening again.
0: Well, I mean, no. I I would say most people, they've been living with bushfire in that area for years. Mm -hmm. Um, And they fully expected that there would be another fire again and that was kind of part of the problem actually it was very difficult much of the debate after the fire happened it was about whether or not the fire could be characterized as normal and a lot of the debate about the fire i actually heard as debate about climate change so it was this debate like we've never seen a fire like this before and what does it mean and it was very unsettling for people's sense of security Mm. And then other people trying to say, no, no, we've always had fire and fire's natural and fire's normal. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of the debate taking place. And you sort of see that happening all over Australia, really. Some people really saying, this is the clarion call, this is the defining moment where we see that climate change is happening and other people saying, well, I mean, we've always had drought. Mm. And, and I actually think that both of those things can be true at the same time. And if you try to tell someone, well, no, you have never had a drought like this and you try to negate their actual experience. You're not going to get anywhere. That lived experience is real and important. It needs to be understood and respected. And so in terms of the locals, the way they talked about fire was, yep, yeah, we'll have another fire here in 10 years, but we'll be better prepared and we're building, we're building better houses, we're building back better. And some people weren't rebuilding. I, said, I definitely met people also who said, I'm not rebuilding, it's going to happen again and it's going to be worse because of climate change. Mind you, they had just moved somewhere else in the Blue Mountains, so they weren't Mm. exactly. This is the the contradiction, right? There was lots of um, people don't behave consistently when faced with these kinds of questions in their lives. There's a lot of things in the mix.
1: Absolutely. It is still just one factor in a very complex tapestry.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think my interest is in holding that complex tapestry, not just trying to front and centre climate change Mm. all the time, but to just keep weaving it in there, to just say yes and this <laughs> where possible.
1: It sounds like this is this is the the smart way to start approaching these topics and, and not to try to get brute force answers and and meeting people more where they're at and everything. So is this a, a field of study and a, and a field of profession that you think we, we need more of as a society? Hmm. Do you think that... You know, at the end of the day, like we we want to restore a safe climate, which is not what we have now, and it's not what we're on track for. Mm. So, like, do you think by having more practitioners within psychology for safe climate, but also just people who are studying these applied soft sciences or like you mm. know human sciences, mm. do you think more people with that grounding would would help us get to a solution?
0: I mean, potentially, it's pretty speculative. I suppose I feel like. I, yeah, I feel like understanding that a response to climate change has to be more than technological and more than political, political is a broad word, is definitely important. And I feel like there is, there is an acknowledgement of that, but there's still a pretty low level of skill, I think, amongst a lot of the way that people communicate about climate change and the way that scientists communicate about climate change. That doesn't account for the complex emotions that it brings up for people. So, yes, I think if more people had that awareness and were doing that work and particularly were interested in not just the emotional landscape, but the very specific local contexts, it's this is this complex paradox about climate change. It is this global issue. We can't bring it down to the local level and talk about it in ways that are relevant to people in their lives. It just doesn't really resonate. It kind of stays this scientific abstract issue. But I think it it speaks to, I mean, for me, it speaks to deeper work that we need to do as a culture in Australia around talking about difficult topics and around a complete re-evaluation of what vulnerability can mean. And actually, I'm sort of toying with this concept at the moment, which, yeah, it's in early days, so don't quote me on this, but sort of this concept of resilient vulnerability And actually finding transformation and resilience from within the difficulty, from within the trauma and the experience of vulnerability, rather than what we currently do, which is build a higher wall and cut down more trees and try to kind of fortify and become invulnerable. That's a very, I think, outdated, outmoded way of responding that's really causing climate change as well. And that worries me, that a lot of our responses to these problems are actually Contributing to the problem, it's a yep. sort of very they're circular.
1: It's are not abating the problem.
0: Yeah, how that deep cultural work happens, I don't know. That's a very big question for me in my life because
1: it's very, very multi-pronged. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> fantastic. Yeah. Well, I think that is a fantastic place to end it. Honestly, I think. Okay. Thank you for giving us a, a sneak peek at this this new thing you're working on, which sounds amazing. I, I like that idea of. I, it's hard for me to to just imagine right now, thinking about it, like, how, how do I feel confident knowing that we already are, we just choose not to think about it, just embracing the fact we are we all are vulnerable. Mm. I feel that right now, is it with my, my cynicism and my pessimism, actually leads me to enjoy life a lot more right now, because every day I'm out, and I'm like, I'm living in the best time we've ever had, and probably we will have as a species. Mm. And I really, like, I get on the tram, and I'm like, I'm on a renewably powered tram, I love this so much. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> like, Yeah. Oh, well. Also, like, I, my two years I spent in China breathing, you know, like, terrible air and being in the post-apocalypse for two years was like, oh, yeah.
0: Mm. Yeah, Wherever it's, we it's are. scary to imagine what could be coming, you know. That is, it's a lot to be walking around with mm. every day. Mm-hmm. And um, I think a lot of people think it's just their own thing. Just mm-hmm. even starting to talk about it, I think, helps. Yeah, Yeah. we're we're all in that
1: exact place. Even if you're not thinking about it yet, as soon as you become aware of the facts, you're going to be right there in that mm, mental place. mm -hmm. Yeah, There's ways to live there.
0: Yeah, and there's ways to, I think, to find the flip of something like fear, which is courage, Mm -hmm. and the flip of something like grief, which is love. Mm -hmm. And knowing that you you don't actually get to have one without the other. Mm -hmm. And a healthy, mature approach to that goes a really long way. Because mm-hmm. you stop treating grief and fear as sort of abhorrent things that need yeah. to be banished mm-hmm. <laughs> in order for you to function, right? Yeah. Be that happy, productive member of society. Sort of
1: sort of make space in your life for them and yeah. you know, treat them as the natural things that they are. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And that again was Beth Hill from Psychology for a Safe Climate. I'd like to thank Beth so much for her time and sitting down with me at her own dining table. And it was a very timely chat with the California wildfires currently raging as I record this, and with those of us here in Australia now poised before a long hot summer. It's sadly a reality for those of us here in Australia that either someone we know, or a member of our family, or a member of our community will live at some point now or in the future, experienced wildfire. It's so great to have groups like Psychology for Safe Climate working in our communities, and it's a privilege to be able to tell you I was able to record one of their live events here in Melbourne not too long ago, all about how people cope with experiencing wildfire. I'm really grateful I was able to record that, and I cannot wait to get that out on the feed now to some more topical things. If you're listening to this show, you know the severity of the climate crisis, and you're probably itching to do something about it. So as I'm sure you know, as you're hearing this, the Victorian elections only a few days away. So make sure you are voting with the climate crisis in mind. Staying in Victoria now, we've just seen the launch of two great groups in the state. We've got Citizens Climate Lobby. It's just opened here, originally from the state's. And we also have Extinction Rebellion. Now, you may have seen Extinction Rebellion in the news recently with them doing an action in London. Members of their group did a direct action in an occupation of a government building in London, with members of their group actually gluing their hands to the walls of the building's lobby. Now, if that's not your speed, I highly recommend, where, as you may have seen, I've been doing a mini-series leading up to the election with one of the collectives, Act on Climate. They do a whole bunch of direct actions and protests, so if you do want to scratch that itch, I highly recommend you go along and check one of those collectives out at Friends of the Earth. And finally, nationwide, there is a planned student strike happening later in November where to raise attention to the climate crisis, students will be either not attending or walking out of classes. So if you're a younger listener, that's something to keep your eyes on and something well worth supporting no matter your age. If you'd like to learn more about any of those, just check the show notes for links. If you've got an upcoming event or announcement for your group or just for yourself personally, you'd like to get out there, please just let me know at hello at climactic.fm. I'm really keen to start using this platform to give back to the community I've gotten so much from. Now to some quick thank yous. First and foremost, thank you so much to our guest this week, Beth Hill, who was so gracious and generous with her time, and look forward to hearing her again in the live recording from Psychology for a Safe Climate in just a few weeks. For his editing and boundless wisdom, I'd like to thank co-founder Rich Bowden, For production excellence and high attention to detail, I'd like to thank producer Caleb Fidicaro. For our theme music, which gives me chills each and every time I hear it, I'd like to thank composer Greg Drossi. For the great climactic logo, look out for merch coming soon. I'd like to thank designer Abigail Hawkins. And for the occasional but much appreciated moral support, I'd like to thank senior advisor Gretchen Miller. Thank you all so much for your time, Mark Spencer. We'll be back next week.